you can be seated. Good morning, Cross Point. So let's continue in our study through the Gospel of Mark. So if you will, turn with me to Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. So I, and as you turn there, I want to say thank you to Katie, to Megan, and the rest of the team as, as they're leading in worship this morning, as Anthony is, is out of town uh, this week. So, so thankful for them. And also want to remind you that next Sunday, we are going to be transitioning to one service. Uh, that service is going to begin at 10 a.m. This is going to help us be able together as one church family after more than 14 months of, of either being worshiping from home or in the park across two services. And so we're excited to be able to worship together. And again, that's going to be next Sunday. We're going to start that beginning at 10 a.m. And so uh, please, uh, if not, you can be early and then help us set up, which is always appreciated. So as you're turning to Mark 8, for me, it's always helpful to kind of see the big picture of where this gospel is written. Like we're walking through it verse by verse, but sometimes it's helpful to take a step back and understand the big picture because today's passage is a significant transition point in, in Mark's gospel. Mark can be broken into three sections. It, it kind of begins in... in Chapter 1, verse 1, up through 8, verse 21, which is where we ended last week. And it's kind of answering this question of who is Jesus? Like, who is he? And, and we've seen him show up, and he's declaring, and he's teaching the kingdom of God with authority. And people were amazed because they're like, we haven't heard anybody teach like this before. He teaches as one with authority. We see him healing people of physical illness, of blindness, lame, deaf, and, and we're seeing that the kingdom of God is bringing about a restoration to everything that has been broken because of sin in, in the garden, that, that God is restoring all of this. And then we see Jesus casting out demons, this spiritual authority, that the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of Satan. Those who have been taken captive by the, the, the kingdom of Satan are being freed. And then we see Jesus raising people from the dead. And we see the promises, the authority that the kingdom of God has even over death itself. Now today is going to mark a significant transition because then in 822 up through the end of chapter 10, it's section 2 if you will. It's this idea of not just who is Jesus, but what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah, to be who he claims to be. And it's the expectation that the disciples have versus the reality of why Jesus comes. And we see these three uh, predictions where Jesus is going to say what it means for him to be the Messiah, him to predict that he's going to suffer and die. Three times he's going to predict this. Three times the, the disciples are not going to understand. And three times Jesus is going to respond with a teaching. And all of this culminates then in Mark ten forty five, When Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in Mark 11 through 16, we have where Jesus is established as what it means for him to be king, the final week of Jesus' life. Now, here's the thing. Between these three parts, there's these hinges. 
these connecting stories where Jesus heals a blind man. And that's where we're going to begin today, that there's this hinge between part one and part two that that connects these two things, where the story begins to transition. And it's going to be a story that for many, it's going to seem strange. And it is. It's going to raise questions like, why in the world did Jesus do that? And that's good. It should raise questions. And in those questions, it's going to help our hearts begin to understand and to see Jesus for who he really is. Not just the expectations of our heart, not just who we want him to be, but who he is. And then it's going to be the call, will we surrender to who he truly is? So let's pray and then dive in. Lord, I thank you. I I thank you for this time this morning. I, I thank you for the passage that you have us in, I believe, providentially this morning. Lord, would you give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Lord, would you illuminate our our minds, our hearts to perceive and to understand the beauty of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, without you speaking into our hearts, how can we see, how can we hear? So Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you move this morning and give us understanding. And in Jesus' name, amen. So look with me at this transitioning story in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. And we're just going to read initially this part 22 through 26. And and they, being the disciples with Jesus, came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him and he asked him, do you see anything? And and the man, he looked up and said, "I, I see people. They look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Here's the thing. Is Jesus losing his power? Like the story is, is that Jesus, and it's strange, spit on the man's eyes and like, can you see now? Like kind of, it's a partial healing, but not in completeness. And so it begs the question, like this is where the questions arise. Why in the world did Jesus do this? Why didn't he heal him fully? Why did he ask if he could see? And even the way that this passage is written, there's one verb that is shown five different times in this passage, and it's all around this verb to see. And it's causing our minds to say, what does this mean? What is Jesus saying here? Why in the world did he only heal him in part? What does this mean? And we see because like it says first that Jesus says, do you see anything? This is the first time the verb is seen. Then the man looked. This is another form of the verb in Greek. And he says, I see number three, but not clearly. Jesus opened his eyes, which is another form in the original language of this verb to see. He opened his eyes. And then the fifth time, and the man saw everything clearly. 
So it can be one of these cases where we look and we're like, what is Jesus doing here? But the reality is, and what I want us to see, is that this is a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality. What we're seeing happen here is Jesus is demonstrating physically of what is happening in the invisible realm of the disciples' hearts. Because even what preceded this, if you remember last week, the disciples saw Jesus feed the 4,000, which initially they doubted, forgetting that he had already fed the 5,000. He sees the religious leaders reject Jesus. They're concerned because they only have one loaf of bread. And Jesus says to them, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? There's this side where the disciples themselves say that they're following Jesus, but what does that mean? There's doubts. They're not seeing things clearly. We're about to see this happen again. This is the hinge. That when Jesus is about to ask them this clear question, who do you say that I am? And we're going to see this profound declaration and then Jesus having to rebuke them because who they think Jesus is is different than why he actually came. They see, but it's like this blind man who can, yes, see, but it's cloudy. And I think there's something that we need to understand here. It should have been the first application point that you see up on the screen. But it's something I I believe we ourselves need to believe, that Jesus needs to open our eyes to be able to see and savor the gospel. Like This is what's needed in our own hearts. This is what we see physically demonstrated here with this man, is exactly how the Bible describes and how the Apostle Paul later in the New Testament talks about our own hearts. When it talks about an unbelieving world, It says that the eyes of the world, they're darkened, they're blinded. It says they're blinded from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. There is only darkness in the eyes. No shapes, no movement, no light. In in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it goes on to say, it's God who must open the eyes. It says, it's God who declares, let light shine out of the darkness, shining in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love this statement. This is the beauty of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. How can we see unless God opens our eyes? Right? It's impossible. We are like the blind man. But even now, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, even now as believers, we remain dependent upon God to give light to the eyes to see His beauty and purposes. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now, now I see in a mirror dimly. Then meaning at the end of time when we stand glorified in the presence of God, then we shall see face to face. Now, now I see in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. God fully knows us, fully sees us now, but now in this life, in this moment as believers, we see dimly, we see imperfectly. We must remain continually dependent upon God to know Him, to see Him for who He truly is. It's God who must open our eyes. 
This is why then even to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, I pray, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he has called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. See, this story of Jesus partially healing this blind man is again a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality it helps us even understand the state of our own hearts presently only by god's power can we see and only then when we see him face to face will we be able to see fully and completely and understand all And it's in that context then, with this story that serves as a hinge between part one and part two, this healing of a blind man, which again, we're going to see another healing between part two and part three with the healing of blind Bartimaeus. We're going to see another transition then. But we're seeing this transition. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? He's declared who he is, but what does that mean? What is, are the disciples' expectation? Verse the reality that Jesus is going to say. Look at beginning in verse 27. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. See, it starts with this simple question. Who do people say that I am? Jesus is going with his disciples on a retreat. I can imagine them walking, talking. It's kind of light initially. Who do people think that Jesus is? Oh, King Herod thinks you're John the Baptist who's come back from the dead. Oh, some say Elijah. They're naming different prophets along the way. They're... They're interacting, they're talking. Who do people say that Jesus is? It's this casual conversation. And then all of a sudden it turns to this personal heart-piercing question. Who do you say that I am? I think even in this, there's a reality. We can talk about God in, in, in general terms. We can talk about what people think about God. And we can have these religious conversations without any personal conviction. In there, but there comes the point when we have to answer the question who do we say that Jesus is? And what's going to be the basis for how we answer that question? See, Peter, he declares, I almost imagine the way that this reads, and we're going to see this as the, the scene unfolds, that then the question's asked, and then they look at Peter. And Peter is, is kind of the representative for the disciples. And it's Peter then who declares, you are the Christ. This means he is the anointed one. This is Christ here. The Christos is is the anointed one in Greek. It's saying the Messiah in Hebrew. He is the one who is promised. He is the one who is going to sit on the eternal throne, the everlasting throne of David. He is going to restore. There's these expectations that I believe came with that declaration of a title that then we began to see. Because the belief was that when the Messiah appeared, there would be a revolution. 
all the enemies of Israel would be destroyed. It was going to be a conquering king. It was going to be where, where Israel would be restored to its place among the world as in the time of King David. That Jerusalem would be the center of the world and all nations would come to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. This was the time. This was the revolution. This is the king who will sit on the throne. This is what is, is thought and intended. When, when Peter declares, you are the Christ, there are all these expectations that have been built up across the centuries as to what this meant. But what happens? How do you respond when expectations aren't met? Do you know what I mean? Like, like if we can just step back for a moment... Like, I like to think I can go with the flow. I don't do that so well. If I'm expecting to have like a, a weekend afternoon off and I begin to make plans and something changes, my wife, like when I was working outside the home, would have to call me to tell me, actually, the evening plans have changed. Just so you have time to prepare your mind. Like, like th there's the expectation. We can begin to plan on it. We can count on it. And then all of a sudden, when that changes, I'm like, I had, like, there was something I had planned. This is how I thought things were going to go. The same thing happens in so many different contexts. Think of, of marriage. Unmet expectations. The expectation of, of how money's going to be spent. Who's, who spends the money? Who wants to save the money? How are we going to raise children? Who's going to do what chores? What's communication going to look like? On and on, conflict so often arises because what we expect to happen and what really happens are completely different. The same thing happens in, in the term as young people grow up into adulthood. Right? It's an expectation of freedom, of time, of money. And then in reality, you're like, I have to work all the time. And bills keep coming. And I don't have any money. And I don't have any time. And now adulting becomes a hashtag. Because, <laughs> right, like there's an amen there. But there's an expectation of, I thought it was going to be like this, and it's not really what I thought it was going to be. And there's this change of heart that needs to happen. And this is exactly what we see then begin to unfold with Peter. Because Peter declares, he answers, you are the Christ. And then in verse 31, and he began to teach them. Jesus then began to say to everyone that the Son of Man, that the Messiah, that the Christ must suffer many things, that he was going to suffer, that he, he was going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and ultimately he would be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. That to me is such a sentence right there. Right? Like, there's no confusion. It's not like Jesus was speaking in parables and they didn't quite understand what Jesus was saying. He said plainly that as the Messiah, he was going to suffer, he was going to be rejected, and he was going to die. I think at this point, Peter stopped listening and never heard the rise again. Because notice then what happens. And Peter took Jesus to the side and began to rebuke him. Like, can you imagine this for a moment? Jesus is, is teaching the crowds, and he's saying, this is what it means for me to be the Messiah. This is what it means of why I have come. This is going to be what is the future holds. And Peter's like, uh, no, <laughs> that's not 
how this works, Jesus. You can't have this defeatist mentality. You're, you're the Messiah. Like, don't let that negativity in. You're going to then let that negativity out. You're going to be victorious. You're going to be conquering. You're going to be successful. You can't die. You're going to be the, the conquering king. You have to believe in yourself. You can do this. We got your back. This isn't what it means to be the Messiah. That Peter pulls Jesus to the side and rebukes him because his expectations of the Messiah were not being met. And Jesus has said plainly why he had come. And then notice what it says in in verse 33, but turning and seeing the disciples. This is why I said it's kind of like Peter's the spokesman. Like like, like I imagine as they're walking, Jesus is saying plainly what's going to happen. And the disciples are like, Peter, this isn't what the plan is. This isn't why the Messiah has come. Say something. You got to say something. So then Peter goes up to Jesus, pulls him to the side, rebukes him. The disciples are there kind of like listening in, like, how's this going to go? Jesus turns, he sees the disciples, and his response then, many seem, seem to be to everyone. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Can you imagine? It's so clearly stated. When it's like your expectations, how you think things are going to happen, are not being shaped by God. They're being shaped by Satan. Get behind me. I am walking in the plans of God, not according to your expectations, but according to his will. And it begs this question of us. Doesn't it? Do you worship Jesus are you, because of who he really is or because of who you expect him to be? Because this is, is, is the wrestle that's happening. It is Peter's expectation of why the Messiah was to come versus why Jesus says he has come. Not as a, a conquering king initially, but as a suffering servant. And I think sometimes this can happen in Christendom. We are, are, are no better than the disciples in this. Like, are we worshiping just a figment of our imaginations that we've called Jesus? Or are we surrendered to the true biblical Jesus for who he has declared himself to be? Haven't you ever heard this? Well, well, God's loving. And because God's loving, he would never send anyone to hell. Right? My God wouldn't do that. I don't believe in that. Because the Jesus I follow? Really? The Jesus you follow? The Jesus of of your imagination or the Jesus of Scripture in reality? When even Hebrews tells us healthy, fearful expectation of judgment if we intentionally go on sinning. That there is an eternal heaven and there is an eternal hell. And we're not called to just surrender to the Jesus of our own creation, but the true, real Christ 
Are we surrendered to our expectation of who God is, or are we surrendered to Christ Himself? It's the same thing. Why does a a good God allow suffering? I could never follow a God who would allow suffering. But who is the biblical Christ? God did not promise us a comfortable life. He promised us His enduring, everlasting presence in the midst of suffering. He said there would be suffering. And then there's people who say, well, I can't follow a God who allows suffering. Then it's not the God of the Bible. Who do you say that Jesus is? In what forms and shapes your understanding of who Jesus is? Because the name can be thrown out. God can be a general term within our culture. But it's the same wrestle that Peter had. Where Peter can say, you are the Christ. And then in the next moment, Jesus is saying, your thoughts are being shaped by Satan, not by God. What is shaping our understanding of who God is? How He works? Our own desires? The culture? Or God's Word, who who He has declared Himself to be? This is the same call. That are we going to comfort ourselves with our own false expectations? Or are we going to be surrendered to who Jesus has plainly declared himself to be? Who do you say that Jesus is? And why? What shapes your understanding of that? And it's in this It's here, then, that we see the cost of discipleship. Because now Jesus has just rebuked Peter and the disciples who were looking on. And then in verse 33, and calling the crowd to himself with his disciples. Now he's gathering everyone about. Come, listen to what I'm about to say. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Think about what Jesus is saying here. To deny ourselves in light of the passage, in light of what Jesus has already said. He's rebuked Peter and his disciples for their desires, for their expectations of what the Messiah would be versus why he really came. And it's saying deny yourself. The the cost of discipleship is clear. To follow Jesus, of what it means to follow Jesus, it's, it's to lay aside our own expectations. It's to deny our own plans for the future. It's to deny our own comfort, to deny our own plans, our our own expectations for how things are going to go. It's to deny ourselves and look to Christ. And more than that, it says to pick up your cross. Now, here's the thing. Jesus has not yet been crucified. Right? There's no spiritual connotation to what the cross meant. The cross meant one thing in the disciples' mind at this time. This is how criminals were executed. The cross, the Roman means of, of execution, meant suffering and it meant death. 
So it's not just saying deny yourself your plans, your future, your comfort, your approval. Deny these things and, and then walk with Jesus a little bit. But as soon as it becomes inconvenient, you can go back to those things. No, it's saying pick up your cross. Those things are put to death. They are killed. They are crucified. And there is a daily reminder of this. There is an ongoing reminder that these things have been put to death as we follow Christ. An ongoing reminder that that my dreams, my plans, the way things I thought that they were going to go have been crucified. They have been laid down. Galatians 2.20. It's a familiar passage, but think about it. In light of this call and cost of discipleship, I have been crucified with Christ. What has been crucified? Yes, my sin. And my expectations. And my comfort. And my approval. And my control. And my desires and my future and all the longings of my flesh have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, set your minds on the things above, not on the things here on earth. For we have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the principle. The picture that we see here. Who do you say that I am? Why? To deny ourselves, take up your cross and follow me. Now here's the thing. What, what has Jesus said of himself? What did he say of where he's going? This isn't just follow me, follow my teachings, my, my, my yoke is easy, my, my yoke is light. This isn't the context of that. The context of this is where is Jesus going? He's going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. And he's going to die. And his call is what you thought was going to happen needs to die and come follow me in rejection and in suffering, and in death. And it's here that you will have life and life eternal. There's a weightiness here, right? There's a, a cost here that this isn't like, hey, just trust in Jesus and your life's going to be all better. How many people walked away at this point? When they're like, that's what it means? This is what we mean by becoming disciples? To die to ourselves and follow Christ even when it means suffering, even when it means rejection, even if it means death? Yes, that is what it means. And he makes it clear, look, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. For in, in verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. There's this sense of a physical life. If, if you want to make it all about this world, all about life here, you're going to lose everything, both, both your physical life and your spiritual life. But whoever loses his life physically for my sake in the gospels will save it. 
who you are spiritually. For what does it profit a man? What does it profit if you gain the whole world, if you succeed in everything you do, but you forfeit your soul? Is that more valuable? This momentary pleasure that you would exchange that for eternity? Like, the the call and the invitation here, I mean, if you think about, if I were to say to you, for lunch, if you skip lunch, don't eat, every meal for the rest of your life will be prepared and cleaned up by a master chef, would you skip lunch? Like there's part of us that would say, well, that's an easy decision. But how completely ridiculous of an illustration is that in light of eternity in God? How do you even compare a meal that's prepared for the rest of your life by a master chef to God himself? Ridiculous. But yet, there's part of us that would say that would be kind of nice, wouldn't it? But, but how hard it is, and when, when we see ourselves, to deny ourselves in this moment, to follow Christ, it's saying we have a better treasure in Christ. Whatever we lose, whatever cost is paid in order to leave behind to follow Christ, what is truly lost when we gain Christ, who God is and what He has done? He is more valuable. But why are you following Jesus? Like, I'm assuming for the majority of us here who's listening online, the majority would say, yes, I desire to become a disciple who is then going to walk in obedience to make disciples. This is my heart, my intention. But my question in this moment is why? Because sometimes I think we follow Jesus or our picture of expectation of who we want God to be to feed our own idolatry in self. Here's what I mean. Tim Keller, David Paulson, Dick Keyes kind of talk about four root idols, four root sins, if you will, out of which flow so many other sins. Power, comfort, control, approval. Sometimes we follow Jesus because we want power. People go into ministry because they want to have authority over someone else, because they don't want to be a servant as Christ was. They want to be able to lord it over others in their moral preferences, in, in their, what they want to have and lord it over someone. And they use God in order to empower themselves. We seek control. A longing to have everything go according to how we want it to go. And we say, yes, God is sovereign, right? But then we begin to say, if I do these things, then I can control God. And then I have control. It just becomes a means of feeding our own desire for comfort. The gospel can be preached in such a way that it appeals to the idol of comfort in people, of pleasure, of wealth, of money, of health, and to say, follow Jesus and you'll get all of these things. What is the greater treasure? Christ or or the idolatry of man's heart that is being fed by a false gospel? 
or approval, a longing to be accepted and desired, not, not just caring about the approval of God, but caring about the approval of others, saying, I want them to like me. I want them to think that, that I'm okay, and so I'm going to follow these tenets, go through these motions so that everybody looks at me and thinks I'm okay. We use God to feed our own insecurities, our own idolatrous hearts. Why are you following Jesus? Whoever would save his life will lose it. We follow Jesus because he's worthy. This is why he's worthy. Right? Like, he's the Messiah. He, he's the one who, in the beginning of creation, said, let there be light, and there was light. He is the one who has created us and formed us in the womb where we were born. He's the one. It is from Him and to Him and for Him. He is, is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the only one through whom we can be saved and made right before God. It is because God took on human flesh, laid down His life, that He conquered and defeated sin. Peter wanted Him to defeat the Romans. Meanwhile, Jesus came to defeat all wickedness and all evil and all sin. Not just to bring about a temporary earthly kingdom, but an eternal everlasting kingdom. What he has come to do is so much greater. And yes, there is a cost to discipleship. But please hear that Christ is a greater treasure. There is nothing you could give, nothing you could leave behind that is more valuable than Christ himself. And so we gladly lay it aside. On the way in this morning, as my wife and I were pulling up a song that we were listening to, that there was a phrase that played right before I, I turned off the car, and it says, tomorrow's promises, tomorrow's joys, is by today's surrender. This is what we're being invited into. Who do you say that Jesus is? What is shaping your understanding of who he is? And why are you following him? Are we living in surrender to who he is and why he has come? This is our joy. This is our hope. This is what Jesus is calling us to together as disciples. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have plainly spoken by your word to tell us who you are and your plan throughout human history, that you would give your creation insight into your purposes and plan, Lord, is mind-boggling. Lord, would you help humble our hearts? Would you give light to our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ? Lord, would you keep our hearts dependent upon you? Help us to lay down our own expectations. Help us to lay down our own plans to not just add a little bit of Jesus into what we're doing, but Lord, to die to ourselves and live fully and unashamedly to your glory alone, Lord.
We desperately, desperately need you. And in Jesus' name, amen.